Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. The Chris and Amy Show, sponsored by Summer at SLU. Find your kids' best summer yet at St. Louis University. Time to rewind. It's the Chris and Amy Rewind Recap. A brilliant first two hours with Brad Young. And Chris Ranji, Brad is in for Amy, who is, uh, we've not on vacation. She is ill. She's, uh, she's not going to make it. It's not looking good for Amy. Hope she pulls through Brad, but I don't know. We, we don't need to be launching into HIPAA violations here, so we don't need to describe how she's ill. Well, it can't be, she'll a, be in. it can't be a violation because we were not doctors, right? No, the doctors aren't. No, that's not the HIPAA. HIPAA is the release of any personal or private health information by the uh, the, by the employer. Right. And so you. I'm not the employer. You are representing the employer no. on the air. Oh, yes, you are. I am? I would make that case. Oh, you would? If I were representing Amy, I would. Nah, she doesn't care. Yeah, she'll be okay, though. Yes, she um, but anyway, she is out today. Brad Young is in. And uh, near the start of the show, Brad, we were going to get into how things have changed. And we did talk a little bit about that after the Janae Edmondson tragic accident that happened downtown just over a year ago. And this was the young volleyball player from out of town who was here for a tournament and was hit by a reckless driver and lost both of her legs as a result of that. And by the way, she got prosthetics back in October and, you know, is on the road to recovery, but still, you know, her life has changed forever in a dramatic way. But, has St. Louis gotten better? And I guess in some respects, yes, it, it did lead to a new circuit attorney who appears to be on top of his game. Gabe Gore um, does not appear to be somebody who lets things fall through the cracks. And the prior circuit attorney, Kim Gardner, did appear to be one of those people. Well, the the key to being the circuit attorney is is a lot like being a coach of a team in that you're not, you know, the coach isn't out there playing. But the coach is attracting talent to the team. Yeah. And that's really what the circuit attorney does. And if you look under Kim Gardner, when she was the circuit attorney, the talent was leaving in droves. Uh, they couldn't keep any talent because no one wanted to work for her. But Gabe Gore is attracting enormous talent. People are coming back to be prosecutors. People are, who left are returning. People like uh, from the big law firms are taking time off yeah. from their big jobs high-paying jobs to come and work as uh, assistant circuit attorneys, and that's the key to making this work. But people were offering help along the way when she was here, right? And wasn't she not was she not turning it down in a lot she, of cases? She was refusing outside yeah. assistance, right? Right, which is which is insane because obviously the the circuit attorney's office was dysfunctional. It wasn't doing its sole job, which is to prosecute criminals. It wasn't doing it. Uh, and, and when people assisted or volunteered to assist, she was turning them down. So now we have a completely different vibe in that office, and it's actually working. And we know of attorneys who are like-minded with her in terms of politics, progressive attorneys who left, who said it just not. Yeah, it, it had just, nothing it's, it's, to do with politics. Right. It had everything to do with dysfunction. Yeah. 
In fact, there was one of the assistant attorneys who was just as progressive as Kim Gardner, who resigned because she said, I couldn't work in this dysfunctional, toxic atmosphere. We also visited with Beth Noble, who is the former Moscow bureau chief for CBS News, also a professor at Fordham University now, talking about the death of Alexei Navalny, which happened on Friday. We don't know a lot. We know that Alexei Navalny died on Friday. We don't know what the cause is in terms of was he poisoned, was he beaten, did he have a heart attack. But you know what? Honestly, it doesn't really matter because he's gone. And whatever happened to him, the Russian state is to blame because they threw him in prison. He was in solitary confinement multiple times. He was denied medical care multiple times. So, you know, not only is Russia responsible, but, you know, there's no way that Vladimir Putin wasn't in calling the shots about how Navalny was was treated in prison. You know, and this incident is just another, Brad, in a long line of incidents or events, whatever you want to call them, associated with Vladimir Putin, that, that is evidence that the man needs to be held at bay, which for me uh, also equals giving Ukraine the aid they desperately need, because right now we are not sending a single American troop over there to fight. No. Right now, all they're asking for is assistance with weapons and money so that they can get weapons to fight Russia off. There's, and it, it's just it's it, compared to what it would cost if we did send people there. It's a fraction, a fraction of the cost. And, and listen, the, the, the best way if folks are outraged that Putin literally assassinated his own political rival, if people are outraged by that, the single best thing that we could do would be to fund the Ukrainian defense effort, to send them additional weapons, to provide them with the resources to to repel what is in essence, a, and not even in essence, is literally an invasion of a democratic state in Europe. We need to take more action on that. It is absolute madness that that we're not doing it right now. And, and listen, European allies of ours are at minimum on edge about what's happening in our Congress with the inaction, the inability to get any sort of funding there. Ask Poland how they feel right now. You know, Absolutely. Ask, ask some of these countries that and, and Putin, by the way, has been very clear over the years how he feels about Poland. Yes. He's, he's not a big he's not a big fan of them no, either. And, no. and, and it's not like anything terrible has happened in Poland in history. So, uh, you know, I, they are right to be on edge with some of the the rhetoric that we're hearing from mm-hmm. prominent Americans over the last several weeks. It's really not a good situation at all. No, and if people are concerned, and listen, I'm a big, big proponent of we have to lower our deficit. In the coming years, the interest on the national debt will be equal to what we pay it for all of our Defense Department budget every year. It has to be brought down. But this is not where you do it because the reverse or, or the consequences of inaction would cost exponentially yes. more than acting now. Well, think about how much um, all of the wars cost in Iraq. We're talking trillions. Yes, trillions. And right. this is this is sixty billion they're asking for. Right, which is uh, it, which is, is incomparable. So I we do we need action on Ukraine 
now. We need action on Israel now. And that is the single best way to respond to Putin assassinating his political rival. City SC is getting ready for soccer. Their first game back in 2024 at City Park will be tomorrow night. We talked to Joey Zanaboni, one of the play-by-play voices. Well, I think the team is more talented than at any point last year. And I think the team was building toward being better on the ball, but ran into a a good sporting Kansas City team that uh, had some guys who are really at the tail end of their professional career, guys who are in their their mid-30s or so on to to win in those tournament-style games. I think having that kind of class of player uh, can often be the determining factor. City will host Houston tomorrow, and then the MLS regular season against Salt Lake will happen on Saturday. That is also a City Park game. Meanwhile, uh, the Cardinals have spring training ongoing today. Officially is the first full team workout. Everybody is in camp now and getting prepared for the 2024 season. They've got their first spring training game also on Saturday. In fact, it's split squad, so uh, the team will play the Marlins, also play the Mets. We talked to Matt Pauley about the roster and the competitions that will happen. There's not a lot of competition for roster spots on this team outside of the bullpen and outside of Mason Wynn taking over the shortstop job. Maybe the, the 25th, 26th guy could end up being a little bit of a competition. But I think the, the number one name that I think of when you ask that question is Thomas Sejaci. He came over at the deadline last year. He won a Texas League batting title. He, We watched him a little bit the other day. He has such a quick bat and he's somebody who probably will impact the big league team at some point this. Yes. Uh, that's Matt Pauley as we're <laughs> go on, Matt. Uh, the, yeah. So, uh, Spring training is happening. Looking forward to the regular season. Well, one of the things I like that that Matt got into uh, discussing before you know before the uh, the technical malfunction there was uh, getting into this idea that Sonny Gray and Kyle Gibson in the clubhouse are actual leaders. And I know a and lot they're of, new and they're new, but it's they're unusual. being leaders in the in the clubhouse because of their previous experience. And I know a lot of people downplay the impact of leadership when it comes to uh, veterans in in the dugout, but it's real. The leadership in a dugout makes a tangible, palpable difference to the team, and I'm glad they're there. It's hard to measure, but I think it does matter. Uh, There are people who... They don't really care about any aspect of the game that's not measurable with numbers. And... And I and I get that to a large extent, but there there are some intangible things that do matter. This kind of thing can certainly matter. Um, whether or not a team gets along can certainly matter. It just it doesn't. It's not a prerequisite. You don't have to have a bunch of guys who like each other for the team to be good, but it does help. So we'll and it helps see. with motivation. And listen, when you're playing at that level, Chris, when you're at that level of professionalism. It's not oftentimes it's not a question of skill. It's yep. a question of motivation. And there's nothing more motivating than a leader on a team who can get you to play 110 percent of your skill level instead of 100 percent. That's right. So um, hopefully there will be enough for this Cardinals team to make a dramatic difference. Last year, a 71 win team, which was not what we expected. Know this, the National League Central is not an especially good division. The Reds look to be pretty good. They are a, a an up-and-coming team. 
Um, the Cubs didn't do a whole lot during the offseason. Those are the, probably, though, the two teams the Cardinals need to worry about. I, Milwaukee? I, 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 well, here, they seem to have gotten actively worse. So I've thought that before about them, and they ended up having, you know, competitive years. So we'll see, but I, you can't totally discount them. But if I had to, if I had to pick the two teams to worry about the most in 2024, it's the Reds and the Cubs. Those are the teams I would pick. And again, um, split squad game on Saturday. So Grapefruit League is getting started, baby. Sports, sports, spring sports are coming back. It's Brad Young. I've got some questions, Brad Young, about the current legal situation for former President Trump. We will talk about that when we come back on KMOX. Got Brad Young hanging out with me today. He's in for Amy Marks Coors. I'm Chris Ranji. So uh, last week, Brad, there was the decision made on the Donald Trump. Um, he's got a few cases that are ongoing right now, but the civil fraud judgment um, from last week in which he has been ordered by Judge Gorin to pay about $350 million dollars. As a result of this, so as you as you take a look at the case, what are your thoughts on it and the judgment? Which, by the way, there was no jury in this, but that's not what he wanted. He had the opportunity to get a jury trial, but he did not want one. Correct. So the the what we saw last week was just the penalties phase. The judge had already decided uh, that Trump was liable for fraud. The only question was what would the penalties be. So the issue that goes up on appeal, there's going to be a lot of issues procedurally. These are the things that make people's eyes roll back in their heads when lawyers make these arguments. So I'm not going to do a deep dive into that. But there'll be procedural issues regarding the admission of evidence, regarding the exclusion of evidence. All of that's going to be up on appeal. But the main issue, I think, that's going to be on appeal here is whether or not there has to be a relationship between the size of the penalty and the size of the damage. What do I mean by that? In this case, Donald Trump's main defense for the the entire trial has been no one was defrauded. Not one penny was defrauded. No one was cheated. No money was lost. And whenever he would present to banks the valuation of his companies, there were always disclaimers that said, you cannot rely on these valuations. You must do your own independent valuations. So if you make a comparison to say, if there is a very small or negligible, if any, harm done to anyone combined with a a $350 million fine, is that... Uh, relationship between the damage done and the fine imposed, is that a violation of due process? And if that's the case, I could see an appellate court significantly reduce that award because there was no proof at any time that anyone or any company was actually damaged or harmed in what Trump did. So it it should there be, and the idea of punitive damages when it comes to uh, things like this? Does it not apply in this case? Where, for example, um, the, the the famous trial of the, or the, uh, the, the, the lawsuit with the hot coffee, you know, the McDonald's, sure. and she spilled the coffee on herself, and she got third-degree burns from it, 
but it sounded like a, a crazy amount of money for spilling hot coffee on yourself. Right. But it was punitive. But see, so, here's what nobody knows about that, because the only thing that gets reported about the McDonald's to- coffee case is that she was awarded $10 million. Right. Okay. What everyone forgets, because it wasn't publicly reported, because it was no longer sexy, is that on appeal, that got knocked down to about $30,000. Yeah. Because there was very little relationship between the damages that she sustained and the amount that she was awarded. So that's a common that's a common legal concept. Except the idea was, if I remember the number, was a percentage of the coffee sales that McDonald's nationwide has in one day. So it wasn't like just some random number they came up with. There was reasoning behind it. Well, Much even like if, there has to be reasoning with this $354 million, right? There still can be reasoning, but even with punitive damages in almost every state, there has to be some uh, mathematical relationship between the damages sustained, actual damages sustained, and the punitive damages imposed. Otherwise, like, for example, in Missouri, uh, if you get a $20 million verdict in Missouri, that's going to come down to to almost nothing in Missouri because of state law that requires, and most states have it. New York has it, but it's different, and and uh, I don't want to go into all the details now, but there, there still must be some relationship between the punitive damages award, awarded and the actual damages sustained. And in the Trump case— there was never any evidence at either the first trial or the second trial that any damages were sustained in any way. So ultimately, what do you think ends up happening with that number? He's liable. They've already determined that, as you've mentioned. Correct. What do you think the number ends up being? Well, I don't know that the number ends up being anything, and let me tell you why. On appeals, this is going to take two to three years to go through the appellate process. So uh, if, if Trump is president, if he wins in November, then everything's going to get stayed pretty much while he's in office. And so if this goes after he's out of office, at that point, is there any real interest in pursuing this? Since I think the main purpose of a lot of this litigation is to keep him out of the White House. If he loses in November, then the question becomes, is there any benefit to trying to keep him from running for office again? And then, uh, and so I think the timeline is what's a problem, a problem here because it's going to take years to resolve on appeal. Uh, most recently in Georgia, there is the process of determining whether or not uh, Fonnie Willis can uh, b- continue to try that case, the uh, election fraud case. What do you think will end up happening with her and with that case, and how much is it actually going to affect what he is facing? I mean, she, her thing is is completely different, it seems to me, than what he is facing. So how will it affect? Certainly. Here's what it all boils down to. The judge in the Fonnie Willis situation has to decide between two pieces of evidence. Piece of evidence one is that there is there's, a, there's evidence that Fonnie Willis was going on trips or doing things with Nathan Wade, um, and she was reimbursing him with cash. And she had her father testify. She testified that she did all this with cash, not checks, not credit cards, not Venmo. That is, and her position is she had no relationship with Nathan Wade before his appointment as the special prosecutor. To contrary, uh, contrary to that is the testimony of Fonnie Willis's former best friend, who said she saw them in a romantic relationship uh, before the appointment to the special counsel. So, 
What that means is the judge has to decide which of those two conflicting pieces of evidence do I find more credible. If he finds the testimony of the friend to be more credible, at that point, Nathan Wade is out as the prosecutor. And if Nathan Wade is out as the prosecutor and Fannie Willis can't appoint the next one, then whoever is eventually appointed for Trump's perspective, either it stays the same, in other words, it can't get any worse, or you could conceivably have a special prosecutor who dismisses some charges, brings some lesser charges, or dismisses charges. So from Trump's perspective, it can't get any worse, but it can get better. What is it, the likelihood in your mind, um, and I know that you're not you're not in Georgia, so you no. don't necessarily know who would be available to try this case. Your opinion, though, how likely is it that he'll face lesser of punishment because of whatever happens here if they do remove her? Well, I'm probably 55, 60 percent sure that 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 Fonnie Willis is going to be held to be in a conflict of interest situation, which means a new prosecutor. Uh, At the end of the day, I don't think a new prosecutor would make a different call in terms of what to charge Donald Trump with, but it kicks that can down the road even further, which gets it way past the November election. I think that's the ultimate strategy. That's Brad Young, um, KMOX's legal analyst, a partner at Harris, Dowell, Fisher, and Young. He's filling in for Amy Mark's course today. I'm Chris Ranji, and on the other side of the 1230 News We're going to determine once and for all if picking your nose will give you Alzheimer's. Um, We'll talk about that with Sarah Lovegreen from the Alzheimer's Association. That is next on KMOX. Brad Young and Chris Ranji today on the Chris and Amy show. We go to the Quiver River Electric guest line and we are joined now by the vice president of programs with the Alzheimer's Association of Greater St. Louis. Sarah Lovegreen is visiting with us this afternoon on KMOX. Good afternoon, Sarah. Good afternoon. So um, we, we have you on the show for a very important reason. There have been a lot of stories recently about Alzheimer's and dementia and things that might end up leading to a greater risk of Alzheimer's and dementia, namely picking your nose. Can we um, get to the bottom of this? Is that an actual threat? Um, probably not. The largest threat that you would have to um, having Alzheimer's disease. So, um, you know, articles like this always make the headlines because they're fun. Um, But really what this uh, particular article was uh, really trying to make the link between is that, you know, for people who maybe are aggressive nose pickers, um, that could cause, bring in some um, bacteria or other um, material up closer to the brain that could cause brain inflammation. And so we are starting to learn a little bit more about inflammation and its relationship to Alzheimer's disease. But I think um, there's a lot of other reasons not to pick your nose. And if this is the one that will get you to stop, do it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, all right. uh, You said aggressive nose picker. Does that mean like doing it a lot or does it mean really getting up in there? What's the... You know, the the article that I saw didn't really get into, I mean, I would think that you've got to if you're going to get things up into your brain, right, I would call that aggressive. Okay. Um, okay. Yeah, you know, like I, that's just my interpretation of it. You know, if you're really talking about bacteria transmitting into the brain. Um, but I think that, you know, it's, again, there's a lot of other reasons not to do that, to uh, spread other infections, especially during cold and flu season. So 
um, all around, just overall don't recommend doing that myself as a public health professional, um, but linking it to Alzheimer's disease, there's still a lot more research that needs to be done. Um, and right now it's a pretty weak association. And and Sarah, we're hearing, hi, Brad Young here, and we're hearing a, a lot of funny things like the story we just asked you about. Also, there's been reports last week that, that Viagra may be uh, people who use Viagra uh, can reduce their chances of getting Alzheimer's. And those things make us snicker and get our attention. But the, the real thing here that I want to ask you about is that there is real palpable objective evidence that, uh, that there are treatments on the horizon for this crippling disease that affects millions and millions of Americans. Yes, yes. We have strong science um, in a lot of categories, um, really around the treatment space and also even around um, risk reduction and thinking about the behaviors we can take in risk reduction as well. And so I think that's one thing we're committed to with Alzheimer's Association is really, you know, taking a hard look at the science. The treatments are phenomenal. Um, and so right now we have Lakembi that's on the market. Um, and we expect soon to see um, denanomab, and both of these drugs work the same way by clearing amyloid out of the brain uh, for those who are really in the early stages of the disease. So it's really in order to maximize that treatment and its availability, it's really important for folks to talk to their healthcare providers about any memory and thinking changes they may be experiencing. Yeah, Brad just mentioned the sildenafil, the Viagra, that a recent study, in fact, it was just about, um, I guess, almost two weeks ago, that, mm-hmm. that we saw that, that said that is, there's almost an 18% uh, a decrease of the possibility of developing Alzheimer's if you are taking Viagra. So how much, I, I mean, what do you know of the study and, and um, you know, how much validity is there to it? Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. This is interesting because actually um, what I learned looking into this article was that Viagra was actually originally designed to treat high blood pressure in angina, which is actually, if we think about connecting the heart and the brain, we often say what's good for the heart is good for the brain. So we know controlling high blood pressure um, helps reduce risk for Alzheimer's disease, um, eating a healthy diet, right, keeping weight in check. All of those things are also good for our heart health. Um, so I think, you know, th- there might be something here, um, I think that could be a little bit interesting. And so this, it was a larger study, looked at a, a large cross-sectional population. Um, and so I think it, it kind of lends an idea into other places within research we may want to go to look at, the, you know, other medications that promote heart health as well as brain health. And Sarah, we're, we're talking uh, with Sarah Lovegreen. She is the vice president of programs for the Alzheimer's Association of Greater St. Louis. And Sarah, you mentioned these other drugs that are, that are demonstrating uh, that they are effective at either reducing the, uh, the, the worsening of Alzheimer's or arresting it where it is when its early detection is, is available. And that raises the question, 
What are some of the issues that you see that should make either a person or a family member say, we need to get this checked out? Because it's not like uh, if you have a runny nose or something that's outwardly object, uh, objectively visible. Uh, obviously, it's a cognitive issue. So what should people be looking for in terms of cognitive issues that make them say, I need to get this checked out? Yeah, so I, and then a lot of, and we also know that people want to know the reason for their memory and thinking changes. So really the hardest part sometimes is starting this conversation with someone you care about when you're noticing some changes. And it's really changes in individual memory, thinking, and behavior. So for example, um, you know, someone who is asking you to repeat something you just told them, that short-term memory, right, may be lapsing a little bit. And so they're having trouble retaining newly learned information. Um, we also see quite often, um, you know, again, relying heavily on memory aids, so reminders and post-it notes and things like that. Um, that could be another sign that some of that memory is um, getting tripped up a little bit. Um, you also may see people starting to pull back from their social activities because they're not able to follow a conversation as well, or they're worried that, you know, it will be obvious that they're having some memory changes to the people that are in interacting with. So people may isolate a little bit. Um, and then also, I think some other ones, you know, when people stop doing things they would normally do. So when, if you've got someone who is great at managing their budget and has always kind of been the uh, chief financial officer of their home, you know, and when you start seeing them make mistakes in budgeting and bill paying, that might be something to talk to a healthcare provider about. Or you have someone who's a great cook who's all of a sudden having trouble following a recipe or making their favorite meals, that would be something. So when you start seeing some changes in what used to be normal behavior, and now they're having trouble doing those things on a daily basis. We had a conversation with a, with a doctor last week about the idea of preventative brain health care, where we know we do a lot of stuff for our heart and for other parts of our body, but we almost don't really know what we can do about our brain because the assumption is, well, just other than reading a lot or, you know, doing, um, you know, brain Sudoku. games, so, you know, stuff like that, that there's not a whole lot you can do. But there's this idea that in the future, maybe even health care uh, insurance will provide for preventative brain health care. So what does that look like or what would that look like? Yeah, so we estimate that about 40% of Alzheimer's risk can be reduced through actually risk reduction activities. And so similar to other disease conditions, you know, eating well, there's been a lot of research on the Mediterranean diet or the U.S. version of that, which is called the DASH diet. Um, and maintaining a healthy weight would fall into that category and getting some regular physical activity. Um, there's a, a certain type of physical activity that's necessarily better than another, um, but what anything that would get people's heart pumping, but really it's the physical activity that you enjoy doing that you will keep doing, right? Um, it's, uh, protecting our heads from traumatic brain injury is risk, uh, reduced risk that we can take. Um, and interestingly, you know, the part about, you mentioned brain games, um, you know, really challenging your mind. So we've got a volunteer who works with us and, and he says, um, doing brain games teaches you how to play brain games. 
Um, you know, and then they're not terrible, but to really kind of challenge your mind in a new way. And that could be learning um, a new language. That could be learning a new dance step if you like to go dancing, for example. Um, it might be learning a new musical instrument or starting to play a musical instrument, something that really gets your brain, you know, you can almost feel the gears turning a little bit um, and kind of maybe a little level up from your favorite Sudoku or crossword word puzzle. And, and to dive a little bit deeper into that, Sarah, isn't the idea of doing something new, whether it's dancing, learning a new language or whatever, isn't the point is to force the brain to create new neural pathways that create opportunities for more connectivity uh, in the brain, uh, which can help make up for the fact that other uh, neurons in the brain are being impta- impacted by the amyloid plaques. Yeah, that's exactly the idea. Uh, another thing too to consider is also, you know, staying in that formal education. You know that, and this is when we start talking about really brain health over the age spectrum, right? So our elementary, middle school, high school, and whatever we do after high school, you know, builds cognitive reserve in our brains through that formal um, education process. So those two are kind of linked together. So to recap um, what you mentioned earlier, we started by talking about uh, picking your nose and whether or not it can lead to dementia. You did say that there, you're not quite sure about that yet, that there isn't hard evidence to really point point us in that direction. But generally speaking, it is bad practice to pick your nose. You did tell us that. Uh, we have a yeah. texter. We have a texter uh, to three one four four three six seventy nine hundred who says that eating your boogers boosts immunity. Can you put that to bed? Um, you know, I have not seen the science on okay. that, so uh, I don't know that I could adequately speak to that one. Okay, but it doesn't sound right, right? Uh, not to me, no. Okay, good. All right. This is why this is why we have intelligent people on, so that we can <laughs> so that we can make sure that these weirdo texters we have don't ask questions like that. Um, Sarah Lovegreen, appreciate the time. Thank you for the information today, and we will talk again soon. All right. Thank you for having me. Vice President of Programs, the Alzheimer's Association of Greater St. Louis. It is Sarah Lovegreen. And those are the kind of people who listen to this show, Brad. Yes. Well, the people who say things like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, don't, I mean, that there's, there's no truth to that. But there is truth that we can make tangible changes now yeah. to our diet, to our exercise, to how we stimulate our cognitive thinking that can make an impact on whether we have Alzheimer's or whether it's going to be severe or mild, that's what folks need to know. And I think it's very important because this one, you know, we, we talked about it last week that uh, there are some really awful diseases that people can have. Cancer is, is horrific depending on what kind you have. Um, some people do really well with it. It's for others. It's, it's just awful, but this man, I know I'm, I, I'm right I, there. I, I don't know that there are any worse than somebody who's got a, a severe Alzheimer's or dementia situation. It is so painful. It's so painful for family members, obviously for the person who is going through it themselves, but it just affects everybody. It is such a terrible, terrible disease. It is, and it literally, and what scares me about it, uh, scares isn't the right word, but what concerns me about it is that it literally changes who you are. Uh, you yeah. could have I, I'm a cancer survivor. Cancer didn't change necessarily who I was. It didn't change how I thought or how I operated. But 
uh, an injury may not change who you are, but Alzheimer's can literally change your personality and how you think, operate, and relate to others. And I think that's what makes it so scary when you see folks who are completely different because of this. And your health can otherwise be perfectly fine. Yes. Yeah, you, except you, for this, you you can you can jog, uh, you can be a marathon runner uh, and still have Alzheimer's and be in the top shape physically and still cognitively be changing into someone else, and that's what's scary. That's Brad Young in for Amy Marks Cores. I'm Chris Ranji. This is the Chris and Amy Show. Dave Glover show coming up at one o'clock. I will be hanging out and uh, Brad Young's going to hang out for a little bit too, right? I will. I'll hang out for at least the first segment. Yeah. There'll probably be something good that we'll talk about. Yeah. And then I got to get get back to my real job. Although I've been doing a little bit of that here today. Man. uh, But not a lot of it. I should have been. Honestly, I should have been recording uh, (laughs) what's going on during the breaks. Because when I say, hey, when I say there's chewing out going on, Brad Young is just... I don't know who's on the other end of that phone, but he is not it, having it with it them. It was not nearly that bad, he I assure is. you. No, he, no, Oh, my no. God. There were threats. Oh, there sure. Were, yeah, that, there that's were me. Threats. Just sure. Brad Young. Oh, my goodness. Who are these people, and what have they done to you? Oh, yeah. No, it was nothing like that. Come no. on. Come on, Ron. <laughs> it was not that bad. But I, you're right. You, you said this earlier. It's how the sausage is made. Yes. At Harris, Dowell, Fisher, and Young. Well, it, it's how the sausage is made at any law firm. Come on. Are they all like that? Well, you've got to, um, when you're negotiating with people, which is what I was doing on the phone, you've got to take strong positions. And you can't stay, take strong positions being mamby-pamby. You just can't do it. So do you, uh, you, you know, you've got you to stake your ground. Have you ever told an adversary... That they are stupid? Never, not okay. once. But what I, I did fire an attorney that worked for me. Really? Uh, there was an attorney in my office 20 years ago. And uh, in a deposition, he called opposing counsel a hemorrhoid. <laughs> I'm not making this up. And he called him a hemorrhoid on the record in a deposition. And when I saw the transcript, I said, I'm sorry, pal, you're fired. I got to let you go. Hemorrhoid. Is he? Is this person still practicing yes. somewhere? Yes, he's still practicing, but not for me. And what did I tell you earlier? If somebody asks you if you practice law, what are you supposed to say? Well, generally I say uh, I, I'm no good at it. That's why I'm still practicing. But well, you, you had a different answer. Yeah, I said that when people say, hey, do you practice law? You should say, no, I perfected it. Yeah. I don't need to practice. That would be a that would be a Scott Rosenblum line, right? You can there. you can use that. Scott Rosenblum, he's he's fun too. Uh well thanks for hanging out with me today. My pleasure. Happy uh, well, to do it. We're gonna do it for a little bit longer. Dave Glover's show is coming up. Anything you missed? Odyssey app has it for you. A U D A C Y and KMOX.com. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.